Hello, welcome back to That Stack of Books. I'm Nancy Pearl, and I'm here at uh, Bryant Corner Cafe with a group of readers. Did I see when you posted the idea, Nancy, that you wanted to do science fiction and fantasy, some people were, were responding with incredulity? Oh, I didn't get any incredulous emails, but I, but I figured that um, that there were going to be people amongst our regular attendees or people who would just come for this who, who weren't big fans of science fiction and fantasy. And so I thought this would be a way to not only um, share with them and, and with our listeners some of our favorite works of science fiction and fantasy, but also I'm interested in why you don't like science fiction and fantasy, um, because it's certainly something that I've been reading since I was 10, and I remember exactly the book that turned me on to science fiction, which was um, Robert Heinlein's book, Space Cadet. I remember where I was sitting at the library where I, when I picked it up, um, and that just started me off. But but fast forward many, uh, many decades, and I just met somebody who works in the tech field last, uh, last week, and, and he said he became um, a researcher in AI and artificial intelligence because of Isaac Asimov's books, um, the, foundation. the Foundation series. So, um, so I, I really would be interested in what everybody's what everyone's what everyone has enjoyed or not enjoyed I'm holding up a copy of um, a 1976 book by um, Clifford C Mack and uh, it's called Shakespeare's Planet um, it, it's not it's not great to do this um, only on audio because the cover is so perfect of, of sort of 1950s pulp science fiction with a big blob and and I, I have to say that Clifford C. Mack was a newspaper man, and so his writing is not the greatest. I mean, it's, it, it serves the purpose of, of getting the story out. But his stories are absolutely, they're not to be missed. And one of the things that I love about him, which some people I think find very frustrating, or found very frustrating, because I don't think anybody reads Clifford C. Mack anymore, is that he doesn't, he, he often doesn't tie up every loose end in, in his books. And so it's left to the reader to imagine what's going to happen next. We'll, we'll put a picture up on the website. This is a classic 1950s yes. image. And, and, and sort of what people thought about science fiction back then, right? Yes. This is wonderful. Everybody should read this book if you can find a copy. Did, did you just say that not everybody's reading Clifford Simak anymore? I don't think anybody is reading him anymore. Just, just me. That seems to be he my was role in life. inspiration for the Star Trek guys, for Gene Roddenberry and the like. Oh, he was? Yeah. Along with Heinlein and others, but Simak was too. All these guys are so, so far out of print that I have some of them in my collection. I have some Daw Doubles and some really, that have Clifford C. Mac in them, and they just, they disappeared. But I keep thinking someone's gonna figure out and bring them back and digitize them into ebook content, because they're great, there's some really great authors like Theodore Sturgeon, Sturgeon or Surgeon? Sturgeon. Sturgeon. Like the just, fish. Right, right, right. But fabulous ones that, that, you know, you just don't, you can't find anymore. Daw doubles? 
Yeah, Daw Doubles. They were um, two books for the price of one. You one book read this, you know, in one direction, then you turned it over and you read the other direction, you know, because there were two, you know, and they were like two novellas, you know, sandwiched together, and you know they used to be very big, and I have about ten in my collection, and you know I finally found someone, a young person who's about to graduate college, who would actually like to read them, you know, I, I'm just waiting for someone to pass them on to. Well, you know, there's a wonderful um, used bookstore in Seattle, Magus Books, and they have a huge and excellent science fiction collection for sale. So if you're interested in, in science fiction, in my mind, you couldn't do better. And you're interested in the roots of science fiction, some of the early ones, although I don't recall ever seeing a Daw Double there. But I, but I do remember seeing many books that Daw published. And now the, probably the ma- one of the major science fiction publishers and who, and is Tor. Right. And Tor, T-O-R, has a terrific website. So if you're interested in science fiction, what they do is send out every day, if you sign up for it, an excerpt from one of their new books or a short story and commentary. I, I, I do quite enjoy that. So that's an email that comes yes. to you? You signed up uh-huh. for on tour? Yep. Yes. How so fun. if you So go into tour.com, Steve, and you could relive your teens. All right, I will. Um, the the, uh, the Simac books are on Kindle. They are digital downloads available on, uh, through Kindle. Are they? Wow, good. Well, you know, when, when they first talked about e-books, and I mean, I was so excited about it because I thought then every single book that I've ever read, I would be able to find again digitized. So I just think it's absolutely wonderful. I'm thrilled that the Clifford C. Mac books are all available digitally. And I just checked who was the publisher, the online publisher who, was, who did those, and it's Open Road Publishing. And they are doing a fabulous job of, of fulfilling my heart's desire, which is to get every book available digitally. They're, they're much more curated than I would be, but, um, but it's great. In that vein, a lot of science fiction and and fantasy, even if it is dystopian, well, makes me happy to see it being written and thought about. So, are there any um, just diehard science fiction fantasy not interested at all? I don't know why. I just maybe because I never read it as a kid, but. Um when I have the time to read, I tend to read things that I can relate to more than science fiction. I think that's probably what it is, is I find it, maybe I just don't have enough imagination. You don't have any robots in your closet? No, <laughs> no, I, not yet. <laughs> Hi, my name is Susan. Actually, I thought I might get some insight here today as to why I dislike it. I'm not even sure. There's nothing in it that draws me to it. But Susan, I would argue that you maybe haven't read the, the, the right science fiction yet because I think that, um, that you like books. My impression over these weeks have, has been that you enjoy books that make you think. Right. That, that give you something to sort of mull over and metaphorically chew on and and that's what the best science fiction does I mean Ursula Le Guin 
every one of her books, I think, beginning with her children, including her children's books, okay. are, and are, I have are read her. you know, are thought-provoking books that ask us to step back and consider who we are and what we believe and why. I guess I'm just, I think of myself as more reality-based, you know, I don't want to go there. And I certainly don't want fantasy. I'm Roz. Um, in the early 70s, someone sent me Stranger in a Strange Land by Heinlein, who said it was just the most fabulous book. He just completely loved it. So I said, okay, I'll read it. And I really disliked it, completely disliked it. Well, Would never, ever read another one. Well, it sure was. Um, uh, um, that book, the, the Heinlein book, Stranger in a Strange Land, was certainly a cult I mean, it, it was a total book of the 70s. I, I mean, it had, it had, it reflected the society of, of a certain segment of 70s, um, of 70s life. Sexist, macho, white men with concerns that were only, you know, to the upper middle class. I don't remember anything about it. I just know at the well, time I didn't like it at all. But then I thought about fantasy and what... So I've read, I read The Hobbit, you know, back when. I read the other three. I loved The Hobbit. I got increasingly disinterested in the rest of the books. So would never probably go back and read that. And, you know, I thought about that some more. And um, I've liked books where there's... Some people call it fantasy. I see it more as... And I don't really like some of the magical realism either, but when it's based in a culture and it's kind of folklore, like The Tiger's Wife, I read twice. I completely loved that book. Some people didn't like it because I think they didn't get it or didn't want this sort of winding story, but it was all about the culture and the folk tales and the, the magical things that happened. And it was so beautifully written. that. So I did like that. Mm -hmm. But um, in general, I guess I want more... I don't know. I, I like things that are imaginative, but I, science fiction doesn't do it for me. Well, Steve, don't you remember the, the famous word that Heinlein seemingly invented in that book? That grocking, grocking, grocking. Oh, I'm sorry. That was Vonnegut. Carass and Grand Falloon. No, grocking. You know, sort of like, I mean, that was the goal. I mean, think about what the 70s was, you know, sex, drugs, and rock and roll. And grokking is this sort of total, <laughs> total merging with another person. It's not a great book, but boy, I remember reading it. Well, this is Carol, and I've been reading science fiction for 45 years. And the typical conversation that you have over and over again is people say, oh, I like science fiction. I love Ray Bradbury. I love Stranger in a Strange Land. And what was the, what's the other one that, that, that they like? I, it crossed my mind, but you know, at the time that Stranger, oh, the, to me, the whole Stranger in the Strange Land and the next few books that Heinlein wrote were all about a man's midlife crisis. You know, he, I mean, he just, you know, it was like hippie goes midlife crisis. And um, so even though he was a wonderful writer, he just sort of like lost his brain or something. I mean, you know, unlike Asimov, who sort of stayed like a, an adult the entire time he was writing. So, um, but I, my favorite book probably of all times is still Moon is a Harsh Mistress. Hmm. You know, and I, and, and I was in that stage when and I thought everyone's carrying around. Oh, also, I too was Board of the Rings. And, <laughs> and, and there was a book called Board of the Rings because 
I couldn't make it. I read The Hobbit, and that was it. I was done with dwarves, elves, trolls. <laughs> you know, you name right. it. There are no, oh, there is a troll, I guess. And well, I mean, I mean, I just, I still I just to this day to... don't like elves, trolls, dwarves, anything with any sci-fi Carol, that features Carol. those. I'm shocked. I know. I'm just so bigoted against them. So I actually had a question, Nancy, because I'm more like them, and uh, I've although I've watched a lot of Star Trek on TV, I just don't get pulled towards these kind of books. So I heard you say, we just haven't read a good one. So how would you define that, not just by author, by, but maybe by format? And then are some of the older science fictions better than the newer ones or that kind of thing? Oh, hard question. I think I might need to bring in people who, have, uh, who are fans to talk about that with me. Um, I like science fiction. I like science fiction that gives gives me a sense of the future, or what the future can be, or how we should approach the future. So, I like science fiction that's sort of rooted in reality in some way. Um, how do the rest of you science fiction fans Nancy, feel about that? I have a, I have a thought. Um and I think what a lot of people might not like is science fiction that is very sci-fi heavy. That is, it's all in space, it's all robots, it's all too far in the future, in the past. And I think somebody who writes that is, that is more accessible might be somebody like Octavia Butler. And she has, yes, in, in exactly that book, uh, Kindred. Um, which is a story about somebody who, um, for whatever, and a lot of times something happens that's mystical, you can't explain why, but she is transported back in time to save her slave ancestor um, whenever she's in these crisis points in life. And so uh, she has this, she can't explain exactly why, but she's transported back to um, a hundred years to her... um, uh, the plantation where her ancestor was being held, and the things that ensue uh, unravel on many different levels. Also, the fact that in the present she's in a um, a uh, interracial relationship, and at one point her uh, spouse goes back with her, which also introduces a whole a whole bunch of additional uh, issues when they go back. So, it's definitely one that there's very little apart from the time travel, little magic involved in the story, no technology involved in the story, but it's just something happens which has, helps us explore a lot of different issues. And same with her Earthseed uh, books, very uh, more of a future dystopian, but there's not a lot of uh, artifice put in with it. So this is Tom. Uh, the book I brought was Kindred by Octavia Butler, and the reason I brought it was because... After I read it, uh, I read an, an interview with Octavia Butler, and she was complaining that libraries and bookstores were putting her books on the science fiction shelves, and she said, I don't write science fiction. And so I really enjoyed that concept because it made me think about a question we should be discussing, I think, and that is, what makes science fiction? What do you call science fiction? When I read Kindred, uh, I didn't think of it as science fiction. It didn't occur to me that it was science fiction. And I realized it was classified that way because there's time travel. But it didn't interfere with the book much. It wasn't the point of the book. 
And so I didn't think much about it. But then I, I realized in retrospect when she said, I don't write science fiction, the reason was she was doing time travel. So does that make it science fiction? There's, there are no robots. There are no spaceships. It, it actually doesn't project into the future. It projects into the past. So is it science fiction? I guess it is because of time travel. But then maybe all fiction is time travel. That's what I began to think. <laughs> all, all fiction is time travel. So all fiction is science fiction. Well, How do you I, like that? Oh. <laughs> well, Tom, I've been like arguing that for years. I feel like I just sort of talked it to death. I mean, I, I think that the problem is, is that we feel the need to ghettoize the, I feel I feel like we um, we have this need to ghettoize books that aren't uh, to ghettoize science fiction to ghettoize mysteries and take them out of the literary firmament and you know I, I have argued for for years that libraries and bookstores should just have one fiction collection because people who would love Kindred okay. are not going to find it in science fiction because they're not going to go there. You know, and and we we just do books such a disservice by by putting these little labels on them. I hate that. On the other hand, on the other hand, if you are looking for different type, if you like science fiction but you're tired of your Board of the Rings, you're tired of fantasy books that seem to harken to some Arthurian British ilk, um, you might want something a little bit different. That's um, one of the things I liked about uh, the Hitchhiker's Guide series. It was much more like a Monty Python uh, sketch than it was really sci-fi. It was using uh, science fiction as a way of just having fun. With in, in, it was more of a British humor series. I don't know if it's considered, a, uh, this is Leslie, I don't know if this is considered a subcategory, but there are some things that are sort of um, creepy dystopian future books and I, I think of the early one that just really made me break into a sweat The Handmaid's Tale, Margaret oh, Atwood oh, oh, that was really so so frightening and then I think I'm not quite sure how long ago it came out, maybe 10 years um, uh, Ishiguro's Never Let Me Go and that was such a creepy concept of, of people who were uh, a subcategory or subclass of, of people who were uh, who were raised uh, in order to harvest their organs at a, a future date, and they were, and uh, just the process of uh, a couple of these people actually figuring out what they were doing on Earth was, uh, you know, and and they're trying to escape was really pretty gripping. And we had a we have a friend who's uh, for many many years been a, a middle school teacher, and he assigned that book for kids to understand a concept of of uh, a group of people who are um, who are uh, sort of put in a uh, you know a classification where they will never have opportunity where they will always uh, be intended to go on a particular. Uh, sort of lower class track and and she said the kids were really really uh, affected by it so but but I find that kind of futuristic book fascinating but I really don't want to have anything to do with those gnomes and 
<laughs> rings and dragons <laughs> because I just find them so stupid. <laughs> you have heard the feeling of every gnome in the planet now. Hi, I'm Sandra, and I love science fiction. Ever since I saw the first Star Trek, I fell hard. Um, I think that this category is so broad now. There are so many subgenres that science fiction books are like cookies now. If you don't like peanut butter and, and chocolate, then you'll like shortbread. Um, there's there's romance. There's science fiction. Uh, the sciency, very sciency science fiction robots, um, spaceship and, and action and spies. Uh, I even read one recently that was called uh, Decopunk, which was just really fun. But the book I brought today is the illustrated screenplay of iRobot, not the horrible movie that actually happened, the movie that should have been. Um, Harlan Ellison wrote the screenplay, of, and he's strung together Isaac Asimov's robot stories, and he's done it in the format, a format like Citizen Kane. And he also talks about the movie industry, which he's always very bitter about. And uh, this book is also, it's not just a script, but it's illustrated. And it's illustrated with his casting suggestions. Um, so you get to see the pictures that feature Joanne Woodward and Ernest Borgnine. And it's just pure fun. It's, it's just such a good time. Hi, I'm Judy. Um, I'm, as this conversation develops, I'm really not clear What's the difference between science fiction and fantasy? Trolls. I know, yeah, I, I'm thinking of Harry Potter, for instance. Well, if there's, so the joke is, if there's um, a rivet on the cover of the book, then it's science fiction. Oh, okay. And if there's greenery on the cover, it's, then it's fantasy. Oh, right, well, that, that's a very helpful, thank you. Right. I thought about that. Uh, I'm Rita, and I love science fiction, probably because I grew up uh, reading Julius Verne, and then later on we were in love with uh, <coughs> Ray Bradbury, of course. Okay, what I think is that the good science fiction is the one that uses the, the science kind of thing, like traveling, uh, time, time travel, or robots, or whatever, not as a, their value per se, but as a vehicle for the writer to tell his or her ideas about society, about ourselves. And one of the best examples is a, a book that you recommended me, The Dispossessed by uh, Ursula Le Guin. She talks about everything that we would be interested in, in such an extent that I would say that this book is more real, more realistic than any of those magic realism from the Latin America that they only do, you know, what they do is to exaggerate the reality. But this one, she's looking, okay, let's, let's just say a myth. A myth is a total fantasy, but the, you know, you don't read a myth because of what they, they, the, the story or the plot, but what is underneath, right? So this is what I love, and this is what I consider is a good, science fiction. What about m new writers like William Gibson or, or Neil Stevenson? Northwest writers, they are doing just what, what Rita says. They are, they are taking the science, tweaking it, looking at it a little bit, and then commenting on the modern days. That's the vehicle that science fiction offers. So one, one thought that I have is that might be also a little bit different about the types that some people might like is there, there are those that where the story starts and everybody in the book understands the new world if they're in space etc and and it's built in a completely different reality whereas a lot of times they start 
and you have no idea that the book is going to take a turn towards some sort of other reality. And the one that I recently finished, 1Q84, which was, um, it's written in, I can't remember the author's name. In, uh, Haruki Murakami. Yeah, and it's just, you have no idea where it's going, why it's going, but it's just one of these bizarre Japanese allegories of, of change happening. Um, and each, each different thing is, is just so un- unexpected. Um, but then it, it, it levels out and it becomes normal again. And it's, it's not really taking you off into a complete flight of fantasy. It's just uh, tweaking with your, your boundaries of reality. And, and remember, Steve, I, I used to call that um, elastic realism that kind of stretching of reality because I thought that that made more kind of intuitive sense than magic realism which I never quite you know that that those two words didn't didn't um, explain it well enough to me intuitively but that elastic realism but here's an example with a Murakami book one of his early books maybe it was his first novel is a book called A Wild Sheep Chase and it's about a sheep that wants to conquer the world. And the way the sheep does it is he insinuates himself into into various people, using them as as far as they'll take him before he exits those people and and goes on to someone who's a little bit higher up and can, can get the power. And there's a wonderful line in there, which I've never forgotten, where where somebody is questioning one of the men who's um, who's been who the sheep has inhabited and then deserted. And the man says, in the, like the saddest voice possible, you just don't know what it's like to be sheepless. <laughs> but, 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 the point I, but the point I really wanted to make is that there is no way that you will ever find Murakami's books in science fiction because Murakami is a quote, air quotes, serious writer. Mm. And and uh, and he is. He's dealing with ideas, and and he's brilliant. Uh, this is Robin, and I just uh, I was thinking I don't like science fiction or fantasy that much, and it, it seems that I graduated from science fiction after middle school. I was reading all these amazing stories, and they all seemed the same. The little magazine, but then I realized that one of my favorite novels is Vonnegut's Slaughterhouse Five, which is semi-autobiographical and deals with Billy Pilgrim uh, becoming unstuck in time and graphically describes the firebombing of uh, Dresden and and Vonnegut of course was a prisoner of war in Dresden at the time it was firebombed in February 1945. Maybe Tom's point that everything is science fiction uh, (laughs) uh, arises in the author's head and has a closer or less close relationship to the real world. Uh, Nancy, uh, this is Rachel. Um, You mentioned earlier that you don't really care for magical realism, and that's one of my favorite genres, if you want to call it that. (laughs) And my favorite book probably ever in the world is 100 Years of Solitude. And to me, that reads like a fantasy novel because it's set in a completely just fantastical village where anything can happen to these characters. And going back to what Leslie said about uh, these sort of dystopian novels being scary, um, my grandma asked me the same thing. I was reading Station Eleven, and she said, "Why do you want to read something so terrible where everyone dies?" And I said, "Well, 
it's interesting to see what would happen. And, um, you know, things like The Handmaid's Tale, Station Eleven, 1984, it's possible to see what could happen and what we could do to avoid things like that happening. I think what's so scary and so fascinating is that all the things there are possible, but we could do something to prevent those kind of things from happening. Well, I just need to correct one thing. It's not that I don't like magical <laughs> realism. It's just I don't like the term oh, magical realism. But I do have to say that I that about 12 years of solitude was enough for me. Yeah. <laughs> and I think yeah. and I think I read that at the just the wrong time. Mm. I think that yeah. I just <laughs> picked it up at the yeah, wrong I've heard time that and it's something I should before. probably go Just, back It does to. go on a little bit too long but I still <laughs> love it. Oh this is Betsy and I thought about this for a long time. I have never read uh, science fiction and never been drawn to it and I, I kept thinking well why and I think the time that I came from um, very conservative family very little, like no comic books, uh, no encouragement of fantasy. And I, I really began to realize it was extremely dangerous to have science fiction or challenge the reality of the day. Well, one of my teens, this is Carol, I just, sometimes I would reread a sci-fi book because I, I want to visit that planet again. That's a reality that I want to exist and hope to exist, but really, the only reason why I would like to live a really long time is to find out how it how it turns out. How the because the science fiction is always a projection of what whether it's McCarthyism, whatever politics, God knows what's going to come out of Trump land, and you know people you know people project what good or bad things can happen or what unintended consequences, and they're written in a book form for science fiction. And I just remember the pain I felt is like. 12, 13 going, oh, I'm never going to find out what happens, you know, I hope there's, you know, I hope there's heaven so I can just see the end of the story, you know, I mean, I don't care about heaven in general, but I want to know the end of the story. Uh, Trumpland is going to be a good science fiction book, and, and we're living it right now, which reminds me, where do you put the, where do you put, like, the, the alternative history books? Are they science fiction, speculative fiction? I think absolutely they're science fiction, and the alternative history, I, but again, you have Harry, a writer like Harry Turtledove, who, who writes um, wonderful, wonderful alternative histories, and if you haven't read Harry Turtledove, there's one called Guns of the South. Um, which is if the Civil War hadn't occurred. So he's shelved with science fiction. But Philip Roth, who wrote The Plot Against America, which is alternative history, you're not going to find that at a bookstore in science fiction, along with Harry Turtledove. So it's also, yeah, fiction. Yeah. 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 Well, it's yes. like Vonnegut. Vonnegut yeah, blew exactly. those, whole those categories right. all apart. I right. Mean, well, I think we need Cat's a little cradle. more. I was no. going to say, I think we need a little more of that anarchist, uh, you know, blowing those genre distinctions out of existence. So then what can I call this, um, this episode? Books that, what, aren't full of rivets or orcs? Books that defy categories? Science fiction books defy categories? Or why we hate categories. Why or we why hate Nancy categories? hates categories. <laughs> but I need something... I need something more positive. Books that make you happy was very positive. Okay. So what's science fiction? Thank you. I'm going with that, Roz. Books that make you think outside the box. I think that one of the important functions is to warn people what may happen. 
you know, the first one that as I remember uh, was uh, Aldous Huxley, Brain New World, right? They were a warning what could have happened. And the most modern one, for example, this uh, a friend of the earth, this boy, you or, know, it's or, just. Or Tom, as we yeah, refer to yeah, him. Yeah, Tom, yeah. It's a different, different, difficult name. So it's warning us what is going to happen, although he wrote it in the 2000 and the book is in the 2025 and 26. Things didn't really happen yet, but it might. That's so another one is this one that I am reading now, Feed, where. You know, these kids oh my have uh, not a computer like we have here, but a computer is a chip um, in their brains. Mm -hmm. And I don't know how it is, I'm just in, at the beginning. Yeah. But I think it's a warning, so it has another value. All right, last words. Anybody, con oh, skeptics? Convinced? Anybody convinced? I was going to say maybe trying to categorize them in science fiction is like trying to categorize Prince's music. <laughs> have to be relevant at the moment. It's very nice. I think it was a, a, a Christmas that my mom gave me a big stack of books and in there was uh, Dracula and um, and also uh, the Frankenstein and uh, you know I think that was kind of an introduction to uh, scary fantasy books so I think of the proliferation of that of those genres I mean they go on forever so well, having said I didn't like science fiction at all, I have to admit that I really, really liked uh, Margaret Atwood's book, The Handmaid's Tale, and the Ishiguro book of, um, <laughs> drawing blanks here, um, Never Let Me Go. I, re I really liked those books and didn't necessarily consider them science fiction, just a different way of thinking. You know what Rachel said, kind of, you know, do we really want this to happen? Let's think about these social moral issues that's a good last word find us at that stack of books that stack of books.com thank you very much